All right, bro. We're Ooh. rolling. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, count us down, bro. Three, ah. two. Oh. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, TV, music, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people. We share that with each other. We share that with you, the audience, and hope it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. I like that one. That was a nice tight pitch. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's how I do, bruh. Hell yeah. Uh, Speaking of pitches, we're starting a new little thing, uh, one we call it a segment, um, called the pitch, the pitch, the pitch. We're pitching. Oh yeah. Ooh, this is this is exciting. So we gotta. I mean, people know what we're talking about based on the title, but you gotta you gotta get them pumped for. It. You gotta get them psyched. So like, yo, bruh, pitch pitch this movie. All right. So today we are talking about one of my favorite films of 2018. Uh, Panos Cosmatos, director of Beyond the Black Rainbow from 2010, took. Every image he loved from heavy metal album covers, a healthy dose of fantasy, a barrage of violence, and the Nicolas Cage-iest performance that Nicolas Cage has ever Nicolas Cage. All of that goes into a blender. He hits frappe and pours you out a delicious smoothie called Mandy. Mmm, that sounds tasty and real chunky. The chunkiest, <laughs> the chunkiest, of, the chunkiest of really, movies. They call it a chunky Panos, is what they call it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I usually get when I go to Jamba Juice. The chunky Panos. The chunky Panos. <laughs> what you um, so what you really get when you go to Jamba Juice is a lot of confused stares. A little bit. Um. So yes, we're talking about we're talking about Mandy, which is which. This is my first time seeing it. Yes. And uh, it was you've seen it already. I think you saw it in theaters, right? I did not. I caught it at home. The the I wish I'd caught it in a theater. The theatrical release was very limited and very brief. Yeah. So most people who caught it caught it on VOD. Yeah. I had heard that the fact that it had run its VOD course was why it wasn't eligible for like Oscars and things of that sort. And not for nothing, man. In a world where Bohemian Rhapsody wins big at the Golden Globes, like where is all of the recognition that, in my opinion, this movie deserves? But like the stuff that's going to win at the Academy Awards this year, Black Panther aside, in my opinion, Mandy's a far more interesting and, dare I say, better film than any of them. Interesting. In my opinion. That's a pretty hot take. It is very much one of my favorite movies of last year. In terms of, and for me, and of course, uh, what makes a good movie is subjective. Yeah. You know, no movie, no matter how uh, well-crafted, is going to work equally well for every single person. So if that's what you mean by perfect movie, yeah, there is no such thing. Right. When I say perfect movie to describe anything, um, it's usually a movie that I'm describing. Right. When I say perfect movie, what I mean is more uh, the sense of goal set versus goals attained. Yeah. And in terms of goals set versus goals attained, I would argue that Mandy is a pretty perfect movie. Yeah, I would I would agree. I feel like it is the best execution of what it was going for. And now what it's going for may not be your thing in the slightest. And I understand because it's going real hard for a lot of real crazy stuff. Yeah. But I so sorely miss that from most entertainment now. I miss people that are uh, artists that are uh, unafraid to... And of course, given the room to go for broke that hard. 
Yeah. And it was because of the the relative success of Beyond the Black Rainbow that producers were really interested sight unseen in being a part of whatever he did next. Producers including uh, Elijah Wood, who's a really big... He ain't just a hobbit, kids. He's, uh, of course, a producer in his own right and a mm-hmm. really big horror guy. So a bunch of producers went, yeah, after seeing Beyond the Black Rainbow, whatever you're doing next, we want to be a part of. And this script, which I, if I'm not mistaken, he'd been developing on and off since 2006, and uh, in its final form, he co-wrote with Aaron Stewart on is is Mandy, and that that became his next project. Yeah, I had read that essentially when he was first developing the idea, he approached uh, Nicolas Cage as the cult leader. Yes, um, and Nicolas Cage was like, "No, I'm red," and yeah, he was and like, "No, right? It's it was young versus old." And he, yes. so he had Elijah Wood in mind. Um, but then after over time, like his perspective changed. Uh, in terms of like what the core of the story was about, and also like Nicolas Cage had a better pitch, um, as opposed to just being like, "I want to play this guy." Um, uh, is that he, your Cage? Yeah, I kind of like that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Gotta find the page. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait. Can <laughs> no. you can you can you tell me that you're more of a treasure protector? I don't even know what that's referencing. It's National Treasure, bro. Oh, is it? I've never seen more that. Of a treasure protector. Ooh, that's a good cage too. Yeah, I it's my cage is very spotty. Occasionally I can occasionally, occasionally. I can, oh, damn it. You got me. You got me before. It. I hate us both. Um <laughs> but yes, yeah, so in uh in transferring over cage to the red role, you're able to bring in Linus Roach as Jeremiah and I think he is spectacular in this movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think everybody across the board is pretty excellent. I don't think there's a weak link in this cast. Of course, the movie is carried by Cage and Roach and also uh, Andrea Riseborough as Mandy. And I think everybody is, I will go so far as to say transcendent in their performances in one way or another. They're not all transcendent in the same way, uh-huh. certainly. But I would argue that each of them in their own way is transcendent in this film. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, everyone is acting at the top of their abilities. Everyone is really diving as, as deep into their characters as they can. Um I have to be upfront in that, like, I'm not a big revenge quest movie person. Um, totally, so this, totally fair. Yeah. Because a lot of them are very samey. I mean, well, I think my big thing, and, and, and this is a, a weird thing to say as, like, a person of color, but, like, I always just want a scene where they're, like, they go to the police, and then the police are, like, we can't help you. And then they're, like, I guess I gotta take it into my own hands. Um, I just want something like that. Um, because, like, you have to work within the system, and then you have to take it. Like, I just, I sometimes, you know, or a lot of, or sometimes, I feel like they, they're, there's a, a step missing between the person being wronged and the person seeking revenge. It's like revenge is the very, like, bloody revenge by their own hand is the very first thing they go to. Right. Right. No, I, I totally get that. My counterpoint in this case would be I don't think we're meant to assume the rules of this world are identical to the rules of ours. De- right. Decreasingly so as the movie goes on. Yes, but I course. think immediately in the movie, the the way that they are executing the story on a technical level, it's very otherworldly. It is very much in an existence that feels of its own. And uh, Panos Cosmatos, there's a really great... I wish there was more supplemental content on the Blu-ray, but mm-hmm. there's this surprisingly substantive 22-minute behind the scenes. And one of the things he's talking about is, for him, story is not what's interesting story is a device essentially uh but what is most 
interesting to him is the way in which the story is told. Okay. And I think that's pretty evident when you look at the story of Mandy. The story of Mandy is very simple. The story of Mandy is essentially Red and Mandy are in love, very much in love. And one day Mandy is wandering out in the woods and this van drives by her and the cult leader, Jeremiah, sees her, becomes very transfixed on her. They abduct her. They cannot essentially convert her to part of the cult, so they murder her, and the rest of the movie is Red's roaring rampage of revenge. Right. It's not a terribly complicated story. The way the story is told, going back to, I guess, what my, what my point was, is the way the story is told immediately suggests to me that this world is not necessarily our world. So I can forgive, especially given how crazy heightened every moment of the movie is, yeah. I can forgive that step missing because we really we don't see any characters that aren't mandy red or somebody tied to the cult in one way or the other right i mean with the exception of like the lumberjacks or whatever at the very beginning right but after that once red goes home from work it's like he steps into another world like that that opening really is the only section that really feels like that and the scene with uh bill duke feels a little bit more grounded in our reality than the rest of the movie but it's only moments it almost in those moments it feels like red has stepped into something more closely resembling our world yeah but the rest of the movie feels like it takes place just sort of half a step removed from our world in this weird psychedelic fantasy reality yeah i get that and i feel like at this point i have to say that like if you haven't seen it um, we're probably going to get real spoily. I mean, I spoilery. just I told you what the story is, so I already spoke. Maybe we should like drop in a spoiler tag. I mean, before but that. like we spoke in general terms, and like that's essentially the the synopsis logline. No, no specific details up to this point, and but like I feel like. Well, I guess I suppose right the the part of the plot that helped sell the movie is it's a revenge story where Nick Cage avenges the woman he loves by being as Nick Cagey as he possibly can. Right. Um, but like, I feel like we're going to get into, like, I think the biggest thing that can be spoiled are the individual moments. Yes. Like you were talking about how, um, it's not necessarily about the, the plot of the story, but like, I feel like this, this, especially with the way the story is told in three specific like chapters, um, it's about those scenes and those moments where, uh, essentially like that, I feel like you have to experience for the first time without any additional context. It is a, yeah. Presupposition. Right. It really is the only way to spoil this movie is to give away moments ahead of time. So go, if you haven't seen Mandy, pause this podcast, go, it's on VOD right now. Check it out. Come back. Yeah. But I want to, I want to ask you because you said you feel like it's in three chapters. I want to know what you feel like the three chapters are because I very much, it's very clear that this is one story in at least two parts yeah. But to me, it happens like when, again, spoilers, after the cult burns Mandy alive, I feel like that's where the first chapter ends and the second chapter is Red and his revenge quest. What would you perceive as being the third piece? There are chapter cards. Like there is there's um, the Shadow Mountains chapter card. Then we have uh, Children of the New Dawn chapter card. And then we have the Mandy one. Yes. I, it's interesting. I didn't necessarily perceive those as being chapters, although I, I guess, right, you could say there are act breaks there. Right. But it really does in terms of the the story being told in terms of uh, uh, how, how much emphasis we're supposed to put on plot. Everything from the start of the movie 
to Mandy's death feels like it is one complete story okay. in itself. And the everything after that feels like it's another complete story right. to itself. Well, because we don't get to that point until about an hour in. Right. So the first hour is essentially all set up, getting you adjusted to the the platform of uh, Mandy and Red and their simple life of like Red working, Mandy doing her like artwork, um, and then essentially that platform being turned upside down once you meet the children of the new dawn. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about the the opening because when I uh when I told friend of the show JQ Salazar that we were going to be talking about Mandy, he and I got into a conversation about it because it, it, for both of us it was one of our favorite movies of last year. And we were talking about that opening section. Yeah. And how just the way they depict Red and Mandy's life together, how where they live seems completely detached from the rest of the world. It's completely isolated and it's like the only thing that exists is them and their love and their home and like the score reflects how uh like we were talking about how the score is very tender very sensual and you see this this vast expanse around their living space and at the center of it it is just their hearts and their love and everything is perfect it's almost like a psychedelic love Mm -hmm. like they fall into each other and they complement each other so completely and they get to have these you get these moments with them like when they're talking about what is your favorite planet yeah. And I love that Nicolas Cage, who is very much in, in real life a massive comic book fan, says that his favorite planet is Galactus. Right. But he's not a planet, but he eats planets. And you are what you eat. <laughs> <laughs> but uh we were talking about like like Jay was talking about how that that feeling and I'm I'm interpreting what we were talking about, but he was talking about how that feeling hit him in a way very very few things do. And I I get it. Without knowing 100% where he's coming from, I understand this feeling of everything being so perfect, being so, like I said, almost psychedelically connected. But there is this danger that is encroaching. And if this this perfect thing is completely ripped apart. And it's, it's I don't know, like it, it affects me profoundly as well in ways that I'm, I also struggle to put my finger on. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, uh, I don't know if I've I've ever felt like a, a psychedelic piece to like relate to it in that like I feel like life is a ball of chaos and and danger's always approaching. They call me Tarrant Danger J Miller. <laughs> um, but I really I I think that's a really interesting perspective. Maybe um, I mean maybe hypnotic would be a a better word than psych- I mean I think psychedelic's the perfect word but if you don't necessarily have well, no. a specific I frame mean, of reference like hypnotic is just and I think that's the word that uh, Jay used as well uh, is hypnotic but I think that maybe is is more if you've never had a psychedelic no, experience well, maybe that's a bit more right well no I guess I was going to I guess the 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 biggest or most accessible way I can kind of relate to that is that like as someone who lives with like anxiety and stuff like right. any any moment of like good you always feel like there's a there's like something bad on the perimeter so like you can never really fully enjoy those like moments of like like i guess just tranquility um so i guess that's the closest way i can find my way into it right and then imagine you get to a place where it feels safe and it feels whole and it feels almost psychedelically or hypnotically wonderful and then that that thing comes and destroys it anyway right 
Um, which yes, you could imagine that like if you if you live in such a like I guess, I would say like a heavenly uh, sphere of of existence, and essentially hell on earth comes comes raging in. Which by the way is some of the most metal shit. This sidebar, <laughs> this is one of the most metal fucking movies I have ever seen. Yeah. Well, it, it feels like it has very much like, and I, I know that it's intentional that it has very much like an old heavy metal feel to it. So you're talking about the look of it, right? And it does have this really specific old school feel. And to achieve that feel, they used the Ari Alexa camera, but they coupled it with the Panavision anamorphic format. And okay. that gives it a very distinctive old school look. Hmm. Interesting. Like, but even the, the, the like animated segments really, it reminds me of, um, what is it's, it's, is it Barbarella heavy, like a heavy, heavy metal. metal. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it has that feel to it or like old, um, like, uh, um, I can't remember the specific, like, like old, like Norse style, like heavy metal, like album covers and yep. things of that sort it very much has that feel to it and like once Nicolas Cage gets into like rage mode you feel like that is it like it could almost you could almost like layer heavy metal onto it and it would essentially coincide with with any like Zeppelin song or like a, I don't know black metal song or something to that effect you just roll some King Diamond over that shit hell yeah and it's like I'm gonna kill the mutants yeah you ripped my shirt. <laughs> uh, that I didn't think we would get a a like traditional Nicolas Cage scream. Oh, we got um, it. We did. It's so funny that moment, which is in the second half, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But the, in the behind the scenes, there's this moment where it's after a take of that scene where it's Nicolas Cage talking to Panos Cosmatos, and he's basically like. Is that okay? Like we could, we could, uh, it's more of a statement than a quit. You ripped my shirt. It's an amazing little moment of watching the two of them try and finesse that specific moment. Uh, but so I want, I do want to go back though. And I want to talk a little bit more about the first half before we dive into the utterly bonkers second half of yeah. this movie. I want to talk about the children of the new dawn and their abduction of Mandy. And I want to talk a bit about Linus Roach's Jeremiah. Cause this character fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. What uh, what would you like to say about them? I mean, I feel like as someone who is coming into it real new, like I I'm also really fascinated by uh, we we had a a discussion about religion a few few weeks ago, which like really kind of rang in my mind because he's he's essentially like a cult leader. Yes. Um, and he like as small as his cult is like. He is essentially using it for his own gain. He's using it to like have sex with all the women he wants and to get as high as he wants. And, and like, like just about every cult leader there's ever been. Right. I mean, well, some of them are all about that sweet, sweet money. Yo, they're all about like, Ooh, baby, give me that money. And then I'll take you to the next level. But it's always, it's almost always dudes. And it's almost always for personal gain, whether it's money, sex, or frequently both. Yeah. So, um, I thought they did a really good job of a like, when you first meet them, you're just like, oh, it's just a group of people in a van. But, like, that scene where he's laying on the couch and he's talking to, uh, I forget the name of the older lady who was satisfying his needs. Um, but he was talking to her and then he was talking to Brother Swan about, like, needing this woman and feeling naked without her and, and uh, needing to have her brought to him. Uh, Mother Marlene, by the way, is the older lady. Got it. 
Um, Mother Marlene. I have a lot to say about that character. Awesome. Um, but uh, that just that scene served to like really build that character in that like he's this character who is super selfish and like everyone is really trying to fulfill his every need. And he, there's this moment where he's like, if you talk back to me, you won't get become clear or something like you won't reach the second level or blah 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 whatever his terminology was um and that like cemented it as like he he's not just a guy who um who these people like he is a definitive cult leader right um and then having that scene end with lucy coming in um this like really timid scared girl um and you know that it's for gross sex stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, really, like, I feel like that was a, a masterclass in, in just, like, character building in, in a very succinct way. Yes, and you meet you first meet Jeremiah through the perspective of the cult, essentially, where they all buy in fully. Like, he's their guy, and they do his bit, like, Manson style. Like, they will do his bidding up to and very much including often folks. Right. But, like, many men who position themselves as heads of groups such as this one, there's not, there is not as much to Jeremiah as Jeremiah would like you to believe. Yeah. And part of why Mandy meets the fate that she does is once she's abducted and they drug her and they put her in a room with everybody where Jeremiah is basically going like, who's the carpenters? He's like, do you like the carpenters? I think this is much better. And he puts on his own fucking album. Yeah. He's the dude. He's the dude who like picks up a girl at a bar, takes her home and puts on his own shit. Mm-hmm. It's just like, what do you think? <laughs> you know, and he, but that's literally what happens. Right. And he starts, you know, derobing and kind of moving around in front of her and basically hyping himself up to a degree that the cultists have totally bought into. Right. But Mandy sees immediately, even, even completely drugged. And we get this cool, visual element of everybody with the the lines, you know what I mean? Like with the yeah. sort of like, you know, the, the tracking effects on their arms and such. Even in that state, she sees how truly pathetic and small Jeremiah is. And she literally laughs in his face. Oh yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Right. And everyone knows what it's like to op- disrobe and a girl laughs at you. It feels terrible. It's not, it right, doesn't feel right. Great. Everyone, everyone knows everyone. I'm not alone. I mean, he's he's not alone. Damn. No. Um, but I do but, like I love I do love the element of the the tracer effects also. Yes, I was gonna ask if there's uh, anything about in the behind the scenes about that. Like I was wondering how much of it was practical and how much of it was like in post. Like I imagine like if you wanted to do it practically, you'd essentially increase the exposure and and you'd also like have the frame rate be a, a bit different. Yeah, and so that like creates that um that kind of effect but i guess you could also essentially create it in in post but i was wondering how much of that was practical not to say that you can answer that no my my, if i if i had to guess i would say it's a blend of both i would say some of it is practical in terms of how it was shot and some of it was certainly done in post yeah but the effect is ultimately insanely trippy and very cool Mm -hmm. and it puts you very much in mandy's state of mind having been drugged and thrown into this room with these terrifying people right and the way that they drug her is insane like um not just that they um they give her this what is could essentially be like hyper lsd but they also um have this giant wasp thing in a jar and sting her in the neck with it 
which like brought my mind to the the like tracker jackers in Hunger Games because uh, that's what they when they like jack you or like I forget what the the term that they use that they did to PETA where uh, spoilers for Hunger Games yeah I'll cop um, to have uh, my only exposure to Hunger Games was the first movie which I saw one time in theaters and I I know nothing else um, well there's a, a thing that they do when they want to um, essentially brainwash you where they like pump you full of tracker jacker venom and then they like expose you to a bunch of stuff um so it was kind of like that um i guys if you remember the phrase the specific phrase text uh tweeted at us at missing outcast m-i-s-s-i-n-g-o-u-t-c-a-s-t um is peter josh hutchison yeah the hutchy calm the um it's definitely not called being jacked off, but like it's something like that. Um, so, uh, so, like, what is it like? Donald Sutherland's like, get into the woods and jack those kids off, and everybody's <laughs> like, um, do yeah. we tell him? Right. It took them three Hunger Games to realize exactly what he meant. Um, right. Before, like in the, in the final movie, yeah, he's like, uh, he goes, get into the woods and jack those kids off, and he finally looks around the room. And he goes, oh, yeah, I have to resign. <laughs> <laughs> and he, wins. He, he resigns and they win. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. They topple the statue. They just now splice in footage from the end of Return of the Jedi where we go to all the planets. Everybody's celebrating. They're toppling the Palpatine statue, but we do really crude. Like we just take a color image of Donald Sutherland <laughs> and paste it on the statue. <laughs> And then they make they make a, a whole other Hunger Games movie, and it's just two hours of footage of celebrations from other movies with the cast of the Hunger Games dubbing in their voices, being like, today is the day the Sutherland statue fell. <laughs> They're just referring to him by his actor name. Right, of course. Only because I don't know the name of the character in this film. They yes. are canonically now breaking that fourth wall. Of course. And talking in celebratory terms about the day the Sutherland statue fell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he... He was uh, Snow until uh, he resigned, and then they, yeah. Um, I was I was salvaging it for all the Twitter people who were getting their phones out, being like, "This motherfucker doesn't know who this was." I'm like, Donard (laughs) Snowderland, Donard. Hello, I'm Donard Snowderland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. No relation to Donald. Snuckerland. That's when I I try I go to the SAG office trying to pose as Donald Sutherland, <laughs> and I'm doing a really poor, like a conspicuously poor job of it. Yeah. Hello. C- can I help you? Yes. I'm noted thespian Donard Snowderland. <laughs> <laughs> just he, the the like guy at the desk just sort of looks up and he goes, "Get out." <laughs> and I'm like, no, and then, I'm it's Snowderland, but I'm being carried away. But right. but Donner <laughs> and Kiefer like steps out of an elevator and goes, Dad. And then as I'm being pulled away, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Am I Donner Snowderland? <laughs> You've been Don- Donnard Snowderland this whole time. I, oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, I have such a nice beard. You do. It's all white. I like it. It's very classy. Yeah. I get to order people into the woods to jack off some kids. Yep. Be- right before you uh, right before re- retire. retire. And they take down the Donard Snowderland <laughs> statue. 
Oh man. Um, but so I wrote the Hunger Games, <laughs> as you can, as you can no doubt surmise. Yeah, it's obvious. Stop, <laughs> stop, uh, stop plugging your other works, which we're here right now, okay? Um, but uh, I feel like this is a good chance for me to talk about Mother Marlene. Yes, let's. Um, because there's this character in in the what I would describe as limited amount of time that you spend with her. Um, is very fascinating uh, just in the way that her face works and in the way that like she's so devoted to uh, to um, oh Jeremiah that uh, you got you get the idea that she is the former best girl yes um, but like two girls removed like it, it was her then it was Lucy and now it's Mandy Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, she just wants to be best girl right now, all the time, forever. And so there's such resentment in her, her eyes and her, her tone right. as she's like getting Mandy cause she's doing her, her duty, but she hates every moment of it. Right. And it, it, the way that this actress does it and the way that like she conveys it because you want to know her story. Mm-hmm. You want to know how she got involved and, and how she became such a devout follower. And if she's also related to Jeremiah, because you, you I feel like there's a little bit of that in there. Um, I would not be surprised. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having, having been presumably that girl at some point in the, maybe not even too distant past. Right. And now being castigated to the role of den mother slash recruiter. Mm-hmm. And now having to, help Jeremiah recruit girls for the position that was yours that presumably if you're going to follow this dude at all, you wanted. Yeah. Which is rough. I, um, not to bring in other things, but like my roommate has recently been watching surviving R Kelly. Um, how I I'm hearing stuff about that. Yeah. And there's a big implication, uh, that the girl who was featured in the P tape, um, is now basically a mother Marlena for all his new um, abuse victims. So, like, she is essentially teaching everyone the, like, rules of his house and um, keeping the, helping them stay in line, which so is, the, like... So the R. Kelly sex cult rumors were not so much rumor as... No, no, they're real. Yeah. Like, R. Kelly should be in jail right now. Because you heard this stuff for years and years, but it sounds so... Until you hear the stories, it sounds so exaggerated. Like, we we know about the P stuff. We've known about the P stuff for a long time. Right. We've known that was real for a very long time. But yeah. when people start saying stuff like sex cult, it's like, well, okay, what are those stories? Because without them, it's like, that sounds so big and weird that... Is that true? Yeah. Apparently it's true. I mean, it's it's very true. And, like, he's a known pedophile since like early nineties when he was quote unquote married to Aaliyah, um, who was 15 at the time. Um, the song age ain't nothing but a number is about their relationship. Um, so fucking wrap your brain around that. But, um, but that is what that, like it, it kind of brings a, a reality to that character yes. in that, like that is exactly how these like cults work where, once the leader is done with someone, they relegate them to another, um, a, a, a more quote unquote, like leadership role, right. which is essentially further doing their bidding, helping them to continue with their abusive actions. Which also tragically reflects 
the way society treats women in broad terms as well. Yes. Um, well, yeah, no. And like uh, emphasis on tragically because it's, <laughs> it's fucking horrible. Right. I mean, cause you could even get into the, this, the idea of like, not even, not even in terms of just like quote, like overt abuse, but like the, the whole like thing in Hollywood where mm-hmm. once you reach a certain age, like you are, you are either you take these fucking old woman mom roles or your career is done. Right. Your, your career is dictated for you, which is, has been changing over the last couple decades. Like um, it's been great that like women have been able to take back their agency in the, in the industry, but like for a very long time, like you, you get all the stuff that um, had been coming out once um, uh, Weinstein was exposed that like all these women's careers were tanked because they wouldn't, uh, sub- submit to his advances mm-hmm. and like so mu- having having that much power over the f- people's futures. Um, and so like there's this this, this point uh, that like you sit down and you're like, whatever happened to this person? And then you look it up and you realize it was she like was essentially blackballed because she wouldn't uh, go down on on someone or like right all that shit would like, have sh- should have had a career right and was denied that because they would not submit to the whims of a monstrous person in a position of power yeah which is not dissimilar from a cult right but but the like at least in the case of children of the new dawn these fuckers presumably opted into this cult right whereas nobody opted into the cult of Weinstein. They were essentially forced into that position. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Um, so yeah. And that like the, the character, uh, makes me ask these questions about like how these people got involved, where they all met Jeremiah, where, um, where they all started. Like, I don't imagine that they've been stationed in this, this town for super long time. Like, I mean, I guess they've been working there long enough to have the chemist and, and the bikers and all that stuff for a little while, but like, Oh, and we're, I want to talk about the chemist and the bikers. Oh, we too. will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I guess I'm still just super fascinated with the, the structure of this cult. Cause most people are about the same age or older than Jeremiah. So it's not right. like he, found these kids and were like, yo, 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 you are, you're mine now. I'm going to teach you my ways. Like at some point he, I guess being charismatic or, or having drugged these people, um, essentially indoctrinated them somehow. And, and the, the movie leaves that open to your interpretation, how that happened. But it's really fascinating, especially because of how much you get from the performances. Yeah. I, I love how much background backstory mythology is suggested by this movie yeah and i love how little of it it fills in like very clearly whether it's that the history of the relationships between the cultists or the history of red and mandy's relationship or the history between red and uh carruthers the bill duke character yeah who's been holding on to his uh, red sniper crossbow which he left in mint condition who like who, what, what is that story? Yeah. Or what is the mythology involving like the horn of a praxis and the bikers who also look like these weird Hellraiser demon monsters? Mm-hmm. I love that it really does feel like uh, Panos Cosmatos and the co-writer Aaron Stewart on 
really did think all of this through yeah. and then held a lot of it back. And I really like that about it. I really like that it then like I, I want the answers, but I never want the answers. Right. It's so much fun to speculate and try and fill in the blanks and connect the dots myself yeah. than to have it all explained to me. Yeah. And they, they like give you just enough to kind of hang a, hang your hat on if that's a phrase that people use. Um, Cause like with the bikers, they give what one man's, like tall tale is where um uh you hear that once they got such a hyper dose of lsd that like they went crazy but could be true it could just be that they are they were insane to begin with um and then you get a little bit of like mandy and and red's origin and that like you get a small flashback when he met her and he's like wearing that 44 t-shirt right and you're like haha i get it and that's, that's his why favorite, it's his favorite. Yep. yeah um, but beyond that, like, and I don't know if, know if you necessarily need more. No, I, I agree completely. I don't think you do at all. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that more isn't there. I think it is. Yeah. Like I said, I think it's so much more interesting to put all of those pieces in place and then let the, uh, trust the audience enough. Right. And trust, trust that the audience will hopefully enjoy filling in some of those pieces for themselves. Yeah. So, um, let's, let's dive into this, the bikers um, because they, uh, I mean, you, I assume if you're listening now, you've seen this movie. Yes. And the bikers um, feature more prominently in the second half. Right. After Mandy seeing Jeremiah for the small, pathetic man that he truly is laughs in his face. And as punishment, she's put in a bag and burned alive right. in front of red, who has been bound with barbed wire and forced to watch. Yeah. It's and- gnarly. It is. And Nicolas Cage does a really great job of like just just displaying how much torment he is in watching his the love of his life being burned alive and like being so helpless to do so. We talk a lot as a culture about how crazy and big Cage's performances are, and they certainly are that. But what I feel like frequently gets lost in those same conversations is dude is a hell of an actor yeah. when he chooses to ground himself in emotional reality the dude is a heck of a performer right i yeah. mean he's a heck of a performer regardless just you know what i mean <laughs> no i know it's like well yes i mean and he's he's won oscars and stuff like that like he has and to hear him talk about um like the reasons behind his choices are really interesting like he did this video for i think it was vanity fair where he's going through his different movies and he's talking about like big moments from those movies and like all the classic cinema that inspired the choices he made behind the characters. He's like, this character does uh, a really loud scream, which is a a remnant of this other movie I'd watched a long time ago uh, because like the character himself had this weird face. And then that face is what I thought about while I was doing the character. And then the scream just came from the face. So at first I was like, wow, that cage is pretty good. And then it gradually slid into, uh, Edgar from men in black. (laughs) Oh God, I want to go or water. water. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but like that it's, it's his, his knowledge of classic cinema and his, his reference points are really interesting. Like I think with, I think, without those reference points like his his acting can seem very erratic and very like 
just big choice for big choice sake. Right. But I think that all of them have a very specific reason behind them. Yes. Yeah. And I think that makes him a great match with Panos Cosmatos as well, because it seems very much like that's Cosmatos' approach to storytelling is taking all of these reference points, stuff that he genuinely loves, whether it is like imagery from the cover of metal albums or elements that he pulled from horror movies, like very much like B-movie, schlocky, gory things that he then gives the A-list treatment to. Yeah. Or, I mean, to me, there's almost no clearer example of this, of him taking something that he loves, throwing it in and remixing the entire thing. Uh, And maybe I'm just making an assumption that's baseless and it's a coincidence, but there was a chainsaw duel in this movie that feels like he watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, saw Dennis Hopper dueling Leatherface with some chainsaws, and went, how can I make this ten times bigger? (laughs) You know, how can I go for it ten times harder than Hooper and company did back then? Right. And to to the extent that we literally have a chainsaw that's the length of a massive sword. Right. Um, like if you if you played Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, uh, you remember the Bagoron sword, the big Goron sword that was about twice as big as you are that but a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, it's this insane moment where like Nicolas Cage already has a chainsaw in his hand. And yes, then this and we guy set up the chainsaw in the, in the opening. Right. Also, sidebar opening title song is by King Crimson, which is dope. Oh, uh, interesting. if you if you've never listened to King Crimson, you should. Uh, if you don't listen to King Crimson, you've still probably heard King Crimson. Uh, Kanye West samples uh, uh, King Crimson track on Power, the sample that goes 21st century schizoid man. That's King Crimson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, go listen to like the, uh, the the yeah. Listen to King Crimson. It's dope. <laughs> anyway, they set up the yeah. They set up the chainsaw real early. And once Nick Cage gets himself out of the barbed wire, he starts putting an, uh, essentially an arsenal together for himself. But the very first thing he does is go back into the house and chug a fuck ton of vodka. Yeah. Just and chug he, it. He like chugs it, pours it on his wounds, and then chug, he, like screams it. gutturally and then chugs some more. To be fair, he's had a rough day, and I bet it really hurts to drink vodka that fast. Probably. I mean, it probably hurts more to pour it on your stupid wounds. <laughs> but, but you know, you have to sterilize the wounds somehow. Uh-huh. That does probably hurt a lot. Right. I would imagine. And then he's like, he's probably also thinking about the Cheddar Goblin as oh he's like God. chugging it. <laughs> That's right. The Cheddar Goblin. Um, uh, I, if they make Mandy 2, I want it to be all about him fighting the Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> Really, I would want the Cheddar Goblin to be, like, his imaginary friend that's always on his shoulder being like, you gotta kill him, Johnny! You gotta kill him! And then he just starts vomiting mac and cheese everywhere, and he's like, okay, I can do it. I'll do it. Like, at the at the very end of the uh, movie, at the very end of Mandy, when he's driving off into what looks like this heavy metal fantasy hellscape, he envisions Mandy sitting in the passenger seat. Yeah. So the sequel picks up right there, and over the course of the movie... Mandy very gradually devolves into the Cheddar Goblin. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's uh, it all ties to it. makes perfect sense. Right, of course. If you think about it. Yeah. Totally tracks. Because, like, if there was an actual sequel, it would be about um, either more the, the cult trying to get revenge on uh, Nicolas Cage for killing their messiah and him having to, like, d- defend himself. Or it's about 
the police that were never contacted uh, coming after him because they believe he killed his wife and then all this cult people. Right. It's just a lot of the police standing around going, what the? <laughs> it's just two hours of what the? Yeah. Do you know what's going on here? I don't know what's going on here at all. Right. What the? <laughs> but also, there really can't be. <laughs> and then Nicolas Cage radios in and he's like, watch the first movie. <laughs> I'm more of a treasure protector. Um, but but uh, there really couldn't be revenge on behalf of the cultists because he pretty well and good revenges all of the cultists to death. Right. But maybe there was like a, a side cult. Like like the van was just leaving a conference where he like Jeremiah just gave a big speech. And then he's like, I guess it's time to go home. Right. And then uh, so then the first frame of the next movie is the, the people going home from their conference being like getting a letter because it's the 80s um, or a phone call because it's the 80s um, at their homes because it's the 80s uh, and being like. Jeremiah's dead, and they were killed by some fucking guy named Red. And then they're like, where do we find this Red? And that's the beginning of uh, Mandy 2. He's searching for the Declaration of Independence because it's got a map on the back. (laughs) And he's just making the big manic grin face that he makes at the very end of the movie the entire time. Yeah. And occasionally he just mutters, treasure protector. (laughs) And the goblin's like... (laughs) (laughs) macaroni and cheese (laughs) um but so so all right moving into sort of the final phase of this movie yeah because he he grabs his crossbow and then the next thing he does and it is maybe the most metal thing i've ever seen on screen haha as the damn it (laughs) all right i'm going home yeah you'll get Um, it you'll get it in one second the, but it, it true. It is true on multiple levels, I suppose. But the most heavy metal thing, maybe that I've seen in a movie, certainly. Uh, stop making that face. Certainly of any movie of 2018, Nicolas Cage chooses as his primary tool a battle axe that he forges himself. Mm-hmm. It rocks. Yeah, it's a it's it's crazy because like I feel like at this point. Like, we're still in a pretty grounded movie, with the exception... Because, like, he goes and gets his crossbow, and you're like, all right, fine. Maybe he hunts. And uh, then he's like, I'm going to forge a uh, an axe, which with a... Uh, what is it called? Like, a, a mold that I already have. Right. With with metal from everywhere, I guess. Right. And, like... It's it's as if this character has been waiting for this moment. He's like, I hope that Mandy gets killed so I can really use this. Or this is his like third revenge quest. He's <laughs> like, I hope no. It's like in it's like in the the newer X Men how they have to keep killing people that Magneto loves to make him evil. Right. It's like we that. We introduce like, a whole a family a family. We yeah. introduce a family for Magneto in Apocalypse. For no reason other than to kill them to motivate the character. Right. And so, like, it's... I feel like he has been on, like, six murder quests before. And his old friend used to go on them with him. But he got, I don't know, hit in the spine and is paralyzed now. And so he's like, I can't go on the... Like, from the bottom down. Um, I feel like... From the bottom down? Yeah. Oh, wasn't he... he, No, he wasn't in a wheelchair. Also... Um, Paraplegic. You can't get paralyzed from the bottom down because that would be the floor. 
Yeah. That'd be the, just the, the just whole, the the whole floor. Just the padding of the soles of my feet are numb. Yep. Yep. That's what that would Every, mean. Everything he touches with his feet becomes paralyzed. <laughs> it's his new special power. It's like a really shitty King Midas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all of his all of his wood floors are so weak. Um <laughs> That's why he lives in a trailer, I guess. Uh, um, no. Um, anyways, yeah. So, like, he oughta, he already has all the things to make this battle axe, which I don't understand. But I don't need to understand. Right. Because, uh, obviously, if if we're on on the way to go fight some LSD bikers, Yeah, some why LSD not? demon bikers. Yeah. But, but right, and at that point, look, at this point in the movie, you're either on board or you're not. I don't think the battle axe and the lack of backstory for the battle axe is going to be what loses somebody at that point in the movie. Well, I mean, that moment is the turning point where you, essentially, from the moment he starts making the battle axe, you're like, all right, this is a different movie. Yep. Because um, it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty grounded until you get to that point. Because, like, the demon bikers are scary, but, like, they're not necessarily, like, demon bikers at that point. Right. They're just, like, a gang of bikers who wear weird clothes. But the moment he makes the battle axe is when you descend into hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, it, it at that point, you're like, all right, I'm on board or I'm turning this movie off. Like, that's where you got to be. It, right. I just uh, my one thing would be I have a hard time imagining that somebody would make it that far and then go, this is where you've lost me. Not not the scene where they drug her and Jeremiah pulls his dick out. I was so there for that. But no, the axe can't. You lost me. I mean, the well, him pulling his dick out informs the character. The axe <laughs> that is doesn't ancillary. It, <laughs> it informs me in a in a way that like I don't. It like brings more questions than it does like answers. And it, it's just it like I feel like it is a jumping point. It's yes. a point that you got to take a leap. Um, For me, the well, I mean, I guess yeah, we do we do start leaping there but the even bigger leap comes once he starts to track down and fight the bikers yeah they capture him and he finds their jar of super lsd yes this this was a moment um it's not it's less a jar and more a bucket yeah it this is so this is a part of a a large string of behaviors that red starts doing that i highly don't appreciate which is he's pretty fucked up by the end no, of this I, thing. Yeah, I get it. But like, <laughs> so there's a moment when there's broken glass and what we assume is cocaine, but we don't oh, know. He does it could all be, the coke. Yeah, it, yeah. It could have just been like flour. It could have been like ground up drywall. But he literally like put, picks it up and is like, "This is mine now," and like fucking shoves it in his face. And then he finds this jar of what could be like. I don't know, glue. He smells it and is like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to put it in my mouth. And it's like, dude, stop. Stop putting things in your face. I need you to like, you have a singular cause. Just do that. Stop putting things that don't belong in your face there. I don't need it. He's going beyond the event horizon, bro. 
a sober man cannot do what he needs to do. You need to be as fucked up as possible so that you feel nothing but the blind psychedelic rage to motivate your vengeance. <laughs> Especially though, not for nothing, right? Like in the conversation with Carruthers, like Carruthers makes it pretty clear that his odds of survival are pretty poor. So I would imagine he goes into this scenario being like, look, I'm almost certainly going to die. So let me get so fucked up that I can literally not feel pain and take as many of these fuckers down with me as I possibly can. Right. That I totally buy. And not for nothing, Tari. He's had a rough day. <laughs> Come now. Well, I mean, what I do when I have a rough day is I play that song, Bad Day, and I just go, this guy gets me. I really, I really, want, uh, I really want you to cut that song into Mandy. <laughs> like, as he's chainsaw dueling. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of which, I want to talk about the action scenes in this movie. And yes, um, like, again, I was having a conversation with uh, Jay about it. And he was talking about how, for him, the second half, though he loves the second half, works a little bit less well because a lot of it works on one level. Yeah. But I think it hits. It's so dang hard that I am certainly not bothered by that. I don't think he is either, but it just it it works on fewer levels, but it aims to work on fewer levels than the first half does. Right. But I really want to talk about the action because what is incredible to me is a couple of these action sequences, um, both the fight with the uh the kind of spiky demon biker by the flaming car, mm-hmm. and also the chainsaw duel. They had one night each to shoot these. Oh, really? These are action scenes that a regular production, uh, your average production, would take a week or more to shoot. And they had one night. And the fact that they were able to pull these sequences off in one night of shooting is staggering to me. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, and yeah, I had read that, like, the director describes that it was as hell on earth shooting those scenes. Um, I mean, I guess it helps continuity that like that the room that they were fighting in is was already messy. So they're like, fuck it. Yeah, it's, it's messed up. Um, but like, yeah, there's a there. Yeah, there was a lot. I can't even imagine trying to plan for those scenes. Um, if you have that little time to shoot, you need to rehearse, 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 choreograph, 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 work it, work it, work it, work it, work it. Because, right. yeah, you've got a matter of hours effectively did they explain why they had so little time my guess would be budget okay because the more days it takes the more money it costs that's true and these are probably you know action sequences tend to cost especially if you're going to make them look all pretty and stuff yeah so i i would guess it was mostly a budgetary obviously a time constrained thing but a time constrained thing is a direct byproduct of a budget thing would be my guess yeah um it's interesting um, that, that fight it, with the, the spike penis biker, um, cause like when you, the preamble to it, I, you see the two dead bodies of the people who probably own this, this house before. And like the guy, um, his butt is, uh, bloody and you're like, did, did they, did they like assault this dude to death? And then I feel like they make this fairly explicit. I mean, they did like in a fairly was, explicit way. It was very, very much implied. And then you, you like it, then it's very overt. Well, you literally see the knife dick. Well, yes, I meant like before, like leading up to it. Right. Like as he's walking through the house and you hear the porno and then you see the bloody butt and you're like, huh. You know and what? I then, could actually, I could actually buy the bloody knife dick being the bailing point for some folks. 
I could actually see that. I could see some people getting that far into the movie and then going, nah. <laughs> um, I mean... Like, you don't see it doing anything. Yeah. It's left to the imagination, and it's just a big phallic knife between somebody's legs. Right. But um, I could see where some people might have a hard time. um it's not my fault that your uh your commentary is so cutting it's very sharp (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i just it it was a lot um and then we get the 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 firefight where like one of the bikers is has essentially set his car on fire um and they have a punching match and the guy is just like taunting him the whole time mm-hmm. um before he catches on fire continues to fight and then is beheaded um oh this was another thing that fucking this red does that um i that drove me crazy okay um so from the very beginning red red is a smoker so like at the end of that fight, he lights a cigarette off of the guy's burning, decapitated head. Which, not for nothing, is maybe the most comic book thing that I've seen comic book fan Nicolas Cage do in a movie, including Kick-Ass, where he's dressed like Batman. Right. Because there is nothing more Wolverine than lighting a cigar on the flames of the the havoc you just wrought. <laughs> right. Um, but this character, every time they finish a cigarette, they literally throw it into the forest and I hate, as someone who, like, works in the forest, you should know. But maybe this character hates the forest. He cuts down he's trees. he cuts down trees. He's cutting down the forest. So, like, this every time he smokes a cigarette, he, like, starts a, a fire uh, hazard every time. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm trying to have sympathy for you, sir. But you are making it very hard by literally throwing fire into a forest. <laughs> I'm like, I'm almost there. And then you just you just ruin it he every only, time. He knows the forest so well that he knows exactly where to throw it so it lands in a very like wet area of the forest. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. He yeah, knows yeah, yeah. it's where he works, man. Uh-huh. It's his world. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm giving it back to the back to the land. <laughs> he doesn't he just like throws it back over his shoulders like, I know there's a puddle back there. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, but yeah, so I like how uh, I didn't realize until I was reading later that the scene with the guy with the tiger was the chemist. I yeah. didn't know who he was. It's a very, it's an odd scene. Yeah. Cause like the way it starts is you see Nicolas Cage like draped in shadow. Right. And you see this guy um, lit only by the flames of his, whatever he's doing. Um, and you see a tiger in a cage. Yes. Um, and, uh, oh, the chemist is played by Richard Brake, who a lot of people would... I mean, you've, you've seen his face. You know his work, even if you don't know his name. I feel like a lot of folks uh, would know him as Joe Chill from Batman Begins. Mm. Did he? Was he also Rorschach? No, he wasn't Rorschach. No, uh, Jack Earl Haley was Rorschach. Yes, correct. He was on... Uh, I know he was on Thrones for a minute, too. Yes. Um, but he's big, big body of work. You definitely know his face, even if you don't know the name. Right. Um, and then this begins this sequence of him like doing a spiel. He just just starts doing a spiel. Yeah, what which, did you make of this? Um, since I didn't know who he was, um, I was I didn't know if he was a friend of um, 
of Nicolas Cage's being like him being like, I got one more stop to make before I go do my last thing. Um, so I was, I was a little confused by it. Um, cause like he starts doing, which, which I imagine are a bunch of references to heavy metal lyrics and, uh, Nicolas Cage is silent the whole time. Then he lets his, his, uh, tiger go, which I believe, which I took to mean that he's like, I'm making peace with dying. Um, and now there's a rampant tiger loose in the forest and someone's going to die later, but no, let's not talk about that. That we'll talk about it in Mandy too. I kept, um, I kept thinking about, uh, with the tiger, I kept thinking about the lyrics from Holy Diver by Dio. Oh yeah. Where he's like, ride the tiger. You can see his stripes, but you know, he's clean. Yeah. That, I kept it. And I'm, that could have nothing to do with why the tiger's there, but it's all I could think about the entire, every shot of the tiger. I mean, but it could also be exactly why it was a tiger. Um, because I had read that it was originally supposed to be a lizard, um, which you could imagine is why it's named Lizzie. Right. Um, but then uh, the day that they were shooting, the director was like, it's a tiger now. Get me a tiger. I need a tiger by 1 p.m. Stuart, <laughs> 1 p.m. tiger. I mean, and it would be crazy. Like, I wouldn't put it past this movie, at, especially at this point, that like the last scene, um, Nicolas Cage comes riding in on that tiger. Swinging the swinging axe. Swinging the axe. Um, and there's like a freeze frame and it's a the album cover of some fucking metal album. And Jeremiah's like, I can see his stripes, but I know he's clean. <laughs> Um, so I, I thought it was a weird moment. I like, I couldn't make heads or tails of it in the moment. And then once I had the context of that being the chemist, I was like, oh, got it. It's, it was the next stop on the murder train. Right. But what I do find interesting is that the so presumably the chemist is the one who's making like the tainted super LSD, for example, possibly, or at least he's, he's in that mix somewhere. Like dudes, dudes, not making like over the counter like children's Tylenol. Right. You know, um but I also find it interesting that he points red towards the children of the new dawn instead of away from them. Yeah. So who who I don't know what's up with this dude. I mean, I don't think he has any alliances. I think he's just like I like especially if he's known as the chemist, he's probably like I just like mixing things. Ooh yeah. <laughs> I just like to make new cool stuff. And then now that he is uh now that he's part of the murder train which maybe he got to survive who knows um but like i imagine he's like yeah you know like they give me money or whatever they give me uh i have no loyalties so like take care of them right they're monsters sure yeah yeah i could buy that right but it is it is a little bit uh ambiguous right um so i i thought that whole sequence was real weird and but like not above the weirdness that has already taken place. So I was like, all right, this sequence is happening. But it's, it is a little bit more ambiguous than I think a lot of the rest of the movie plays. Right. I think it's because we don't get, like, in all the other scenes, I feel like we get a bit more context, whereas, like, I feel like there's a missing scene. Either, like, Nicolas Cage flipping over that that jar, and it has, like, the chemist in his address, and he's like, okay, my next stop. Um, right. Or or something. But, like, uh, yeah, it happened. Um, but it ultimately leads us to our final destination after the chainsaw fight, which is, like, uh, 
the we we get back to to mother M- mabel mother mabel i like you know what i i like I like that we'll go with Mother Mabel. Well, yeah. sure. Mother Mabel. Um it's uh Mother Marlene. Mother Marlene. Um we get to Mother Marlene and she is essentially trying to seduce Nicolas Cage. And the it's weird, the cinematography at the end of this scene, I was like, did did he partake? Did he cause the, she's like I can I can show you all the pleasure. I know how to read bodies. I can show you the world shining, shimmering, splendid. And he's like, "Don't you dare close your eyes! Don't you dare close your eyes!" Take off my shirt! I just like I really no. I really want I I really want somebody to just drop that into a whole new world. Exactly <laughs> the same song, same lovely lovey dovey melodics. And then Aladdin just turns on her. Just like, <laughs> Don't you dare close your eyes. Um, yeah. And then the rest of the song, it still keeps, but she sounds a little nervous. Yeah. She sounds, she's no longer feeling safe oh, on this magic not. carpet. Um, I think there's an SNL skit about that. Um, I'll tweet it out, guys. Why am I not writing for SNL then? Um, well, How do I, I don't know. Not? Maybe That's it was true. me. Yeah. Um, when you go to the the credits, it says Domnall <laughs> Darnold Snow. Um, but yeah, and so like we we get to the final scene with um, Red and Jeremiah, and Jeremiah exposes himself as like the the weaselly coward he this, is, right? The small pathetic scumbag that Mandy saw him for immediately, right? He literally, um, I mean, he literally begs for his life going so far as to offer to fillet Red right. in exchange for sparing him. But, like, why would he want that? Like, that's like if someone was like, give me all your money, and you're like, I have my old baby teeth. It's like, I don't what? want that. <laughs> it's a currency that he know. doesn't. I don't know if that's a one-to-one. One I exactly. think it's a one-to-one. One. I think it's it's a currency that he's definitely not interested <laughs> in. I don't think... I don't think we're meant to read it as a genuine offer for Red to consider. I think I think we're meant only to to see even more of how pathetic Jeremiah is cuz that's that's where you go when you have nothing else to barter and you are so desperately desperate right. and scared and small. It's like please I'll suck your dick. It's yeah, this no. dude. This I like dude to read so... it as a genuine offer. He's like, it's what everyone wants. It's 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 my heart's desire. So I'm gonna give it to you. Accept this gift in exchange for my life. And, and Red he's is like, like, I don't want your baby teeth. <laughs> baby teeth. Red's like, I gotta talk to my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but but yeah, he he further exposes. Well, no, he hadn't exposed himself. It's just Mandy saw right through. Well, he did expose himself, but he didn't yes. expose his character, his true character. Right. Mandy just immediately saw through all of his bullshit. But finally, in his in his final moments, Jeremiah very much exposes himself for the very pathetic small man he is. Right. And then Nick Cage crushes crushes his head. Yeah, and his little eyeball pops out. It's cool. Crushy crush. Um, so nice we're... prosthetic. Yeah. It's practical. It was nice. And then, and then Red gets back in his car, having completed his revenge quest, hallucinates his departed love in the passenger seat, and then just speeds off to who knows where. But we get these incredible final shots of this big, fantastical heavy metal hellscape. And 
who knows, man, after you take that LSD, who knows if you ever come back? So maybe right. that's his existence now. Yeah, I'd like to imagine he wasn't even driving. I'd like to imagine that he, like, sat in the car, and all of him driving is just in his head, and he's sitting there, and he's, like, just passed out on top of the, the steering wheel. Um, and that's the end of the movie. It's real sad. Oh, it's, no, he's it's had the, a day. It's the thing, right? It's the thing where, like, once once people started talking about how you could read the ending of Taxi Driver as a dying fantasy, people start to try and ascribe that to everything they possibly can. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. It sounds I mean, it sounds like a Reddit forum where people are like, but he's like dead. And it's all just a fantasy. They kill him with the barbed wire and the rest of the movie is just no, his. not even the rest of the movie. I'm not like, saying that's what yeah. you're saying. I'm saying that's what I'm reminded of is people trying to blindly ascribe this wherever they possibly can. That's true. I mean, he did literally get stabbed in the side. He did. And so he and he never sewed that up. So he was like bleeding out that whole time. Um, so like if, if he you were to vodka say. He on it. It's fine. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, 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 totally. Um, no. <laughs> it's not how that's not how it works. Um, we are pretty much out of time, yo. Um, so you got any last thoughts before we wrap? Uh, this movie's bonkers. It is some of the metalish shit you will see on a screen. It is far and away one of my favorite movies of 2018. And uh, much much like our friend JQ Salazar, I would love to live in this world. <laughs> I don't want to be. I don't want to know these people. Uh-huh. Let's be clear. Yeah. I don't want to know any of these people. Right. But I kind of want to live in a world that is that hypnotic and psychedelic and trippy and metal. Interesting. I don't want to live in this world. I don't want to know any of these people. That is yeah. an important caveat. I don't mean right. the world and the circumstances of Mandy. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I don't want that either. I don't want any part of that. That's yeah. horrifying. But the, the aesthetics of this world and the mood of this world, I would love to inhabit that. Yeah. Um, I also, I recommend it. I feel like if you, if you, you're on the train that a lot of people are on where they're like, Nicholas Cage has lost his mojo. Um, he hasn't. Dude it's just, great. dude just loves to work. And I feel like the, the big difference here, and it, this does happen, but I feel like a lot of filmmakers don't know how to harness the bigness of his choices. Right. I feel like, uh, Panos Cosmatos, uh, uh, like let, Cage crank it to 30 yeah. and knew how to harness and focus it in a way that really did help elevate the movie. Yeah, I think that they've been trying to shoehorn him into movies he doesn't belong, whereas like if you can complement his acting style, then I think that that is the best case scenario. Like you get to you like when you put him in stuff like Face Off, where like that is prime Cage. Yes. Um, he excels. So like Dude, just keep putting him in bonker stuff. Like, oh, dude, like even even fucking kick ass. Just give him good stuff to work Where with. Where he's like kryptonite. <laughs> <laughs> while he's on f- spoilers, while he's being burned, he's just screaming kryptonite. Because I guess that's the name of their plan. Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh man. Uh. But. If people want to talk to you about Mandy a little bit more, where can they find you, Home Skillet? I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. Awesome. I am at Tari J. That's T A U R I J A Y on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find this podcast both on Twitter and Instagram. We just made it an Instagram, so you can follow us on that. That would be amazing. Um, it is at Missing Outcast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T. 
You can also hit us up on the Missing Out hotline. Uh, it is 978-MISS-OUT. Let us know what you're into. Let us know what you thought of Mandy, all that jazz. Um, we also love hearing from you guys. We got a few more ratings. They were five stars. Um, no reviews, but like you know who you are. So thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the show. For sure. Um, we love and, you too. Yeah, oh my gosh. We love you so much. Uh, so thank you for supporting us, and, and we hope you continue to do so. We're trying to make sure to keep bringing you content that you love. Um, if there's anything that you would like to, us to would, anything you would like us to cover this year, um, let us know on Twitter or on Instagram or, or on the hotline or wherever, and we will do our darndest to get to it. Um, so uh, that is our show for this week. We will see you next week. You've been filled in. That's that's my new catchphrase. Ah, uh, that's, that's my new catchphrase. That's inappropriate. You that's have, not gonna play. No, in the it's not gonna play in Peoria. Oh, we're filling you in. You you got filled in by missing out. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I promise this is not gonna be our, <laughs> it's our, our official sign off. It's a reoccurring catchphrase. Please please, please, please tune in next week. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so you can get filled in. That's not Everyone why. loves to get filled that's in. Not, that's not true of everyone. Oh, that's, yes. It's really upsetting. <laughs>Did you know a turkey puppet once ran for the presidency of Ireland? Did you know that meat once rained from the skies of Kentucky? Did you know that there was an emperor of the United States for a while? Then listen to the Wikiship Down podcast. We live in an age when the sum total of humanity's knowledge can be found in your pocket on a smartphone at any given time. But when that knowledge is pure editable, like it is on Wikipedia, what does that say about mankind? So follow us down the digital rabbit hole as we drink, joke, and curse our way through the random button on Wikipedia and see where our journey through humanity's knowledge takes us. While you're at it, follow us on all social media at Wikiship Down. I'm Ruth Ann. I'm Ryan. And be sure to find us every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts.